Let's turn to John chapter 2, if we will, and we're going to finish up this morning. We're willing on the series that we've been doing on the first cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry right after He turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee goes into Jerusalem and we've looked at this and we tried to look at it from a high view and then what it uh, says about us and how we can apply it up, in and out. Revelation, illustration, application if you will. And last week we started to unpack the things that were true about the religious leadership at at, at the time of this uh, event and the corruption of the priesthood, the corruption of the priests and those that managed and had oversight over the temple and how that corruption was seen all the way back into the end of the uh, Old Testament and the things that were going on there were still that brought God's judgment and silence and silence is judgment um for 400 years. Then John the Baptist is raised up as the forerunner of Jesus and right behind him, of course, is the one he's raised up to point to. And here he is and we see the seven weeks of the new creation, we called it, in the first seven days that are recorded in John um, 1 and, and the first part of 2. And then right after that, Jesus moves in and goes uh, to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. The first of what appears to be two cleansings of the temple. The spiritual condition that he found the leadership in was manifest in their exploitation of the people, extorting money from them for purchasing animals for temple sacrifice, charging exorbitant prices and then of course extorting money to them when they were changing their money so they could pay the temple tax with the temple coin and they were charging them exorbitant prices and as a result of that enriched themselves in a place where God had ordained that men would meet with Him and not uh, not be hindered from doing so. So the corruption there was um, enraged our Lord. And, and so it would. And we see so many things uh, that can be drawn out of this. And we're going to try to go through uh, a couple more and then we'll move on, Lord willing, to uh, 23 and the following and chapter 3. Let's pray before we do as we open up God's Word. Father, we thank You so very much for Your love for us. It's an amazing thing and that we're compelled by the love of Christ that we don't live for ourselves anymore or ourselves, but for the One who died for us and rose again. We're moved by Your love. We love You because You first loved us and we're recipients of grace and that grace motivates us for holy living doesn't uh, move us in a way to just go out and recklessly live with some kind of license to sin because after all, where sin abounds, grace does all the more. No, we realize and recognize that as a result of Your grace, we've been baptized into the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're new. And we've been made new and now we have an appetite and the power to walk new. And Lord, I pray that You'll use this time that we have together in Your Word this morning to advance Your work of conforming us into the image of Jesus, to sanctifying us so that we know Him and You can work through us in new and fresh ways and powerful ways to make Him known. And that, God, we would not ever be an impediment or be guilty of being an enemy of the cross, but we would point by our life and our confession and our conduct by our profession and our practice we point people to the cross and not get in the way or hinder their trip there the vision that they need to see 
of a holy God who died there in a repentant man's place and that their personal sin that gave rise to the need for that sacrifice that he didn't die for his own sin because he didn't have any but died for every repentant man, woman, boy, or girl who repent toward you and put faith in him deepen our appreciation and understanding of you today God that we realize that this this gospel is not just a plan it's a plan that's about a man and his name is Jesus it's personal it's communion it's relationship it's love and I, we pray also that you use this word to deepen our unity as you deepen our relationship with you you deepen our unity with one another our love for one another whereby you're glorified and lost people know we're your disciples. In your sweet name we pray. Amen. Well, let's read through it once again and then we'll look at some things before we uh, move on. God willing, next week to the end of this chapter and chapter 3 as well. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple in three days, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Remember last week when we started looking at the religious leadership at this time and the spiritual condition they were in, we went all the way back to the last prophetic word that they received from the Lord in Malachi that rounded out the prophetic words of the Old Testament. And the spiritual condition of the nation and the priesthood at the time, and that had left been left unchecked because no repentance and gotten worse over time in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Nothing has changed. It's just gotten worse. And at that time, the priesthood was defiled, do you remember? And that's from Malachi chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, first part of chapter 2. Marriage was corrupt. Uh, divorce. Treacherous dealing with wives. And of course, by extension, we can understand that it would be spiritual adultery as well. Married to the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know, James says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then they were robbing God of tithes and offerings. And so there was greed and there was um, avarice and a love for money. And then we fan the pages of the New Testament and we begin to see that uh, in a passage like Luke chapter 16, verse 14, if you'll just look over there for a moment, if you will, in Luke 16, 14, um, the Bible marks out it makes it very clear that these religious leaders love money in Luke 16.40 it says now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him so the Pharisees were in love with money and so that was the leadership of the temple at the time and they manifest that love for money that in the name of God and true worship they set up a system of false worship and extorted money from the people in order to serve their own selfish appetites and to feed their idolatry, which is love for money. And we went into that. And the, the, the fruit of that is to not be able to hear. Not be able to hear from the Lord. And we drew a contrast between the disciples, these common men who saw what Jesus did and related it back to the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 69 and went, oh, He's acting this way because it's spoke. He's spoken of this way in Psalm 69, and we speculated 
what if you had some hearers among the religious leadership and they would have taken the same line and go, let's biblically process what's happening. And they would have been drawn back to, I'm convinced, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1-3, through where it's spoken of that Jesus would come and cleanse the temple and cleanse the corrupt priesthood that was going on. So He offered them yet again an opportunity to repent, to draw back to the Word, to process biblically what was going on, to think biblically like the disciples were doing, and they didn't. Why? Because their love for money crowded their heart and the Word was choked out and they couldn't hear. Hence, 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. I'm going to bear. I'm going to re- repeat this, Lord willing, when we go and dig a little bit deeper into the four points we had this morning. It's important to note that the ultimate judgment on persistent refusal to hear is the inability to hear. Ultimate, now watch the words now. I'm using extreme words here. Ultimate judgment on persistent. God is long-suffering. He's patient. If you need any kind of evidence of the patience of God, just look in the mirror. The ultimate judgment on persistent refusal to hear is the inability to hear. So these guys have ears to hear, but they cannot hear because they come to Him with their lips, but Jesus says, your hearts are far from Me. Quoting from Isaiah, our Lord said of them, well did Isaiah say that you come to Me with your lips, but your hearts are far from Me. The inability to hear is the judgment, not just the fruit, not just the consequence, but the specific judgment of God upon persistent refusal to hear. So these guys can't hear. They can't process spiritually anything that's going on around them. But yet they can. And they were offered an opportunity to do so. But bound by their greed and their avarice, their love for money, their exploitation of people, their sham religious system, instead of processing the sign that's in front of them, they ask for another one. So I've outlined this, what we want to go through this morning, Lord willing, in four ways. Affections, authority, assessment, and aspirations. Affections, authority, assessment, and aspirations. And you don't know what that means right now, but hopefully as we unpack it, we try to make sense of that. First of the affections. The affections they had were with this world. And we've gone through that. We went through that and dipped into that last week. Money and the immorality that comes from avarice and greed. And we're told in the last days, perilous times will come. And men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Lovers of money. We have a crisis at the southern border of this nation. People illegally flooding into here and flooding this nation, disregarding our laws. But little attention is given to the fact that no one would flood across the border if people refused to hire them. So... Lest we get smug in our concern about our, the invasion that's taking place in this nation, understand that the only reason people would do, the reason that people do that, and they shouldn't do it, but the reason they do it is because there are employers who will hire them to exploit them for cheap labor. So the greed of the United States, the, 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 if there was no one there to hire them, they wouldn't come. Greed. Avarice. You see it all over the place. The primary competitor for lordship in someone's life is money. 
Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. No man can serve two masters. Well, these guys were experts at it and they were using it as a religious Ponzi scheme in order to enrich their own pockets and control the people so that they could exercise power over them to keep their power base. And they were using religion to do it. Judaism. And it really upset the Lord because that certainly wasn't the purpose of that temple. They're lovers of money. Wicked, spiritual adultery. Look at Matthew chapter 12. If you will. And you know, they're constantly asking for signs from Him. And Jesus, Jesus calls them out on it. For instance, in verse 39, He answered and said to them in their questioning, We want to see a sign from you. And He said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And He went on to say that Jonah's testimony gives testimony of his imminent death, burial, and resurrection. And they said, here's why you want a sign. Because you're evil and adulterous. You're in love with the world. Marriage had been corrupted. They were marrying pagan unbelievers. And when that happens, it's always that not the unbeliever influences... I mean, the believer influences the unbeliever, but the unbeliever influences the believer. Spiritual adultery is taking place. Physical adultery is taking place and it's evil and He marks it out. And you can mark it down with almost every false religious system. You will have a love for money and immorality. Almost always they go together because it's all rooted in idolatry. So those were the affections. Those were the affections of the religious crowd at that time. They couldn't hear and they couldn't process what was going on right in front of them. You know, when we think about things that we see and we try to process what's going on around us, we should always do it through the sieve of Scripture, the prism of Scripture. We should process and say, Lord, would you help me to think and act biblically? That my mind is so in accord with your thoughts that are here in the Scriptures And as a result, your heart, because your thoughts become from your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You want to know the heart of God? Read the Word of God. Because that's where it originates. And then we can have understanding. And these simple disciples understood what was going on. These simple fishermen, this ragtag bunch of common guys without the pedigrees and all of that. There's nothing wrong with all of that. But there is something wrong with it when you begin to rely on it. There is something wrong with it when it begins to feed your pride. You remember we observed that the common people heard Him gladly when Jesus talked. Just the average folks heard Him gladly. And that was an example here. So our affections, we better be careful where our affections lie. He is going to pose the question. I like the way one pastor posed it when I heard a beautiful sermon recently on Psalm 24. And he said, Jesus is going to say, look, at you, look, look, let me see your hands. And he's going to examine our lives and how we lived as Christians. And he's going to pose the question, what kingdom did you live for? You know, the people who are subject to the judgment of God in the book of the Revelation on more than one occasion are called earthy, earth dwellers. Bound to what you can see, feel, and touch. Bound to their senses with no spiritual understanding whatsoever. So bad that when judgment starts to fall, there's still no repentance. Amazing. That's why I've encouraged you and I have to remind myself that when you get spiritually confused, spiritually, you feel like you're in a spiritual moment where you just can't, you don't have clarity. First of all, confusion is not from from the Lord. The Bible says God's not giving us a spirit of confusion, but of love and of spirit of fear, but love, power, power and sound mind. That confusion is from the enemy, not from the Lord. The Lord is the Lord of clarity and truth. I think it's helpful to stop and say, "All right, Lord, let me go back to the last clear word I heard from you, 
and see if I'm walking in obedience to it. If these guys would have done that, they would have gone back to Malachi and said, Aha! This is the Messiah. Because Malachi told us when he arrives, he's going to clean up the priesthood. And we need to repent. That's how humble people would have handled this. And Jesus is enraged because they missed it. They could not see the forest for the trees. No one is more blind than those that think that they can see. He called them blind leaders of the blind. It's what He called them. You'll remember in His scathing indictment in Matthew of them. Jesus confronted them without fear. He confronted them boldly. And every time the ante was up, He went after it. He had no hesitation in calling out false religious systems. He nailed them. He did not cower back in the least. He did not did not water down anything. He was confrontational and He was honest and He was truthful and He was bold. That's why they stood down. That alone should have been enough of a sign for them. How could one lone man command control of the temple in the middle of Passover when there are people from all over the world there? And he all he does is take a whip and one man in a seamless garment, humble man, walks in there and takes control of the whole situation. And you want a sign? affections we are foreigners here our citizenship is in heaven this is not our home hallelujah and one of the ways that there could be tangible measuring of where our affections lie is to take a careful prayerful and humble and honest look at our checkbook Where do your affections lie? Where do my affections lie? Where do our hopes rest? What are we looking forward to? Where is our gaze? Where are our expectations? And what we can see, feel, and touch or what can't be seen, which is what's real and eternal? It's a question we need to pause and ask, isn't it? Not only do we need to see their affections and where they lie and maybe challenge us to pause and ask where ours lie, authority is the next thing I think we can see here. Authority. Now we're going to have to go to the second cleansing of the temple and reflect back on some of it in order to discern this. But you'll remember that in the second cleansing of the temple, now this is the first one, But in the second cleansing of the temple, this happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other one uh, happens um, happens toward the end. That in that cleansing of the temple, um, let's go look at it in Luke's account, if you will, since we're in in his neighborhood, and. Let's go look at Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Now, this is the second cleansing, but we can learn something from looking at it. Then He, Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the temple sought to destroy Him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear Him. Common people. Now it happened on one of those days as He taught in the temple, the people in the temple would preach the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted Him and spoke to Him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it? Who is He who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them and said to them, I'll ask you one thing, and if you'll answer me, um, if you'll tell me this and answer me, I'll, I'll tell you. 
in, Mark, in Matthew's account, it says, I'll tell you where I got it from. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? <clears throat> and they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If we question God's authority in our lives in any level, and we're unsubmissive to that authority, we get no answers from Him. You see, you know, I have a kingdom. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Jesus rules and reigns over an eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom, those who are part of the kingdom submit to His authority gladly because He died for us. It's a willful, joyful surrender because we're purchased by Him. If we are not in submission to that authority, we don't get any answers from Him. That's what happens a lot of times when Christians feel like they can't get a word from the Lord is because there's some level of authority they're not in their lives they're not submissive to. Now, you know what they are in general. We'll just go through and see some of them. But look at Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, and we, we, there are just simple things, very simple things that we could do that we could get clarity. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to give you. If you question my authority... Not only my possession of it, but where it came from, you get no answers from me. You get no answers from me. He was giving them an opportunity once again to confess Him as, as Lord. And, of course, they rebelled against the authority. But when it says in Ephesians chapter 5, and you'll remember, we've made much of this text because we really do want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about that many times, that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a believer. But the Lord has called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means to be controlled by Him. There's one indwelling, and that's in salvation. But there are many fillings, and that's in sanctification, where we decrease and Christ increases, where we no longer call the shots and He begins to call them, and we submit to Him. And then it says there are three attributes of being Spirit-filled. One is, look at it, gratitude and joy, and then submissiveness, three. Sorry. 19, chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Joy, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving, and then what? Submitting to another, one another in the fear of God. Submission. The marks of a Spirit-filled believer are we are joyful, we're thankful, and we're submissive. And then he goes in the next few verses and says, here's what I mean by submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. There it is. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. As you submit to Christ, you do for your wives what Christ did for you. And live in sacrificial love toward them. And then he goes on to say in six one, children, obey your parents of the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. And then he goes on to the next level of submission in verse five, and it says bond slaves, and we could understand that to be employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity, sincerity of heart as to Christ. If we're not in submission to God's delegated authority, then we're not in submission to his inherent authority. Because delegated authority is from Him. And it doesn't say, do that if they treat you the right way. You know, only do that when those that you're submitting to are acting in ways that they deserve it. It doesn't say that. There's no qualifier there. There is no qualifier there. You've heard me tell this to, to, to the account. I was really deeply probing into this when I was at our previous church and I was the associate pastor there and I asked our pastor, our pastor said uh, we went to lunch and we pulled off on the little side road. We had a, The church had a piece of property there with a, with a barn on it and we were sitting there just talking batting things around and he said I said can I ask you a question? I said is there any area with you as my authority that I'm not in submission to you? 
And he said, yeah, there is. I said, okay. He said, the Bible study that you're having with Kevin Pounds, who was our college pastor at the time, runs too long on Thursday morning. I'm glad you're having the Bible study. You're mentoring him. He came to me and asked me one time to invest in his life. And I said, oh, my goodness, it'll be... Oh, please. So he come in there and meet. He's a godly young man. And we just get in there and get to fellowship and get into the Scriptures. And sometimes we'd be in there for three hours. And my pastor said, I want you to end at so-and-so time. Well, I knew then that anything that takes place after he told us to end is not of the Lord. I could spiritualize that all day long and say, well, Pastor, you just don't know what broke out. you know." And I could use all kind of spiritualization to spiritualize that. But the truth is, I need to submit to his authority and God's not in anything that was happening after that. This is a big deal. These guys were not in submission to God's authority. What did they get back from Him? Nothing. Nothing. No answers. No spiritual processing. They don't know what's going on. They can't see the forest or the trees. The tables are overturned. One man commands the entire temple with all hundreds and hundreds of people around. And He stands down, every one of them. Every one of them cannot explain it, but they stand down. They're seeking for answers behind what's behind all of this because something is... This is power that we don't wield and we don't know how you wield it. Submit to Him as Lord and you'll get your answer. And then of course in Romans 13 and a parallel passage in 1 Peter 2.13 we're submit to government authority. Uh, Romans 13.1 let's go look at that. You look at the levels of submission in the Scriptures and the Bible says Romans 13.1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, and included in that judgment is the inability to hear. And then there's a parallel passage Concerning that in 1 Peter 2.13, we won't go there. That's enough said about that. Then we have Hebrews chapter 13. And Hebrews 13.17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. And let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Those who are in charge of the spiritual shepherding do it in a way that is joyful, not a burden. These lines of authority matter. These guys have usurped the ultimate authority, and so therefore they can't hear. And if we can't hear from God, we're hopeless. Aren't we? I mean, I'm telling you, we're like a pilot flying without instruments. And we're going to run aground in a tragic way so their affections were messed up. They were usurping the authority of God which He was trying to lead them to repentance. But then let's look at the assessment. I call it the assessment. Look at John. I, this is exciting to me, but it's a reminder to me and it's an encouragement. I hope it will be to you. Look what he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. John So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're going, (laughs) What a joke! It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. The Bible says he was speaking of the temple of his body. And therefore when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the Scriptures and the Word which Jesus had said to them. All biblical truth speaks of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The encouragement that we can hold here is that when we look at the tabernacle and we study the tabernacle and we probe into it and we say, Lord, let us see you in here, we're right in looking at it that way. When we look at the Scriptures and we process and see what does this say about Jesus Christ, His glory and His coming glory, His first coming, His second coming, His authority, His power, His identity, His work, His witness, His ministry. What does it say? I'm in Genesis. It says something about Him that we're right in it. He personified the temple. He was speaking to them and expects them to understand this. This building is not the end. 
This building is a sign that points to Me. Your religion is about form and fashion, buildings, pomp and circumstance. I'm about reconciliation. And you don't get reconciled with buildings. I'm about reconciliation between God and man. I'm about life. That's what I'm about. This temple is a means to an end, but it is not the end. You worship this temple. You worship what you can latch on to. I'm convinced that's why Jesus left nothing behind in His ministry. Because if He had of, we would have worshipped it. Well, there was a stick that Jesus touched and there would probably be a whole cult following to worship a stick that He touched if somebody could prove it. We're prone to that. And Jesus says, no, I'm speaking of Me. This temple speaks of Me. You want to assess things? Look at them as to how Jesus can be seen and known through it. Where is He in this? I want to know more about You. I love that song, More About Jesus, What I Know. More of His grace to others shows. Spirit of God, teacher be. Teaching the things of Christ to me. And it goes on to say, the Word teaches me. I learn from the Word who He is. Jesus turned to him and He did say, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have life. But these are they which testify of me, but you won't come to me that you might have life. You know the Bible like the back of your hand, but you've missed the entire message of it. It's possible to do that, you know. It's possible. It's not a historic book, although it contains history. It's not a poetry book, although it contains poetry. It's not a hymn book, although it contains hymns. It's a hymn book. H-I-M. It's Him. This relationship and the fellowship that that relationship purchased It's not about the temple. It's about pointing to the temple. I'm the temple, Jesus says. It's me. Your religion has cloaked you from seeing the truth. You cannot see it. Don't look at the temple. Look at the One to whom the temple speaks of and points. I am the temple. So we want to assess things. It's not about the building. It's about who it represents. Who does that building picture? Who is it? And it's Him. And there He is standing there. It was a magnificent building. That's for sure. It was a magnificent building. But that's not the point. It was to point to a magnificent Savior. The Creator and Redeemer of the entire world. Then we see the aspirations. The aspirations. What was God's plan for that temple? God's plan was to offer and was a legitimate offer to the children of Israel to receive Him as their Messiah and their Lord. And they rejected Him. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. And His plan was for them to go there and from there be a light to the Gentiles. But he ordained and knew it was going to fail. And he's the light to the Gentiles. We can learn something about that from the temple itself. You know, that temple was originally built by Zerubbabel and Ezra. You go back and look at Ezra 6.15. But it was greatly expanded and improved by Herod. So it was a post-exilic temple. It was built after the exile. And they go back, you remember. Haggai says, you know, you're building your own houses and the temple lays in ruins. And then in Zechariah, we see him encouraging them to build it back. And they build it back through his strength and power. But it was delayed substantially. Laid in ruins for a long time except for the, some, of the, some minor work that was done to it. But in the rule of the Herods, the temple was built to its glory at the time that this happened. And it was magnificent beyond what we could imagine. It was made of marble and gold. It was surrounded by... You had the temple and then you had four courts on every side of it on lower successive levels. In those four courts, there were specific areas for specific groups of people. 
One court was for the priests, one court was for Israel, one court was for women, and one court was for the Gentiles. It was bordered by covered colonnades, porches, with you, if you will, with pillars of white marble, 40 feet high, each made of one single stone. It's a stone of the pillar, one stone, 40 feet high, holding up this roof. You remember one of them on the east side was called Solomon's Porch. This is where the traders were. The whole area was surrounded by a massive wall a thousand feet on each side. It was about the size of four average city blocks. And it did take that long to build it. It it took that long to do all that work. And then some actually. The amount of excavation it took because of the lay of the land. They had to literally take out part of the hill that it rests on in order to make it level enough to build the foundation. It was a tremendous act of construction genius to have it there. And there it sat. And they're sitting there thinking, oh yeah, Mr. Big Shot, you will come in here and build it back after you get ready to tear it down. Apparently you're angry enough to do so. And they missed it. Missed it. Missed the message. They missed it. Entirely. Now speaking of this temple, speaking of what the temple represents, we're not divorcing the truth from the temple. We're expanding it so that it's known. This is what this is all about. This temple. Jesus says. And I set you up to be a light to the Gentiles. I set you up to be different. I gave you the Levitical laws and the ceremonies and all of that so you'd be different than all the people around you and you'd be a bright shining light. And what did you do? You turned and failed. And you've turned away from me. And now they've rejected him up to the all the way, all the way up to this point, except for a remnant of those who were faithful and remain so. But he's upset. He's upset about the difference between what the plan was and what the reality was. But yet he has a plan that supersedes both. He himself will do this. I'm the light. Jesus knows He alone can bring the light because He alone is a light. He was angry. Curiously enough, it never does say the Lord was anger, angry in this passage, although it's obvious that He was. But the only time that the Lord is spoken of as being angry is in Mark chapter 3. The actual word anger. And we'll go into the word underneath it. But look at this. They mark him out for healing on the Sabbath. Look at it, Matthew chapter, Mark chapter three, if you will, with me. He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. They're setting him up. It doesn't say it directly in here or in the parallel accounts and the synoptics, but. The sense is, is they got that man with a withered hand and put him in that position to bait Jesus to see if he would do such an outrageous act as to heal a man on the Sabbath. You'll remember that they had elevated Sabbatical law to go way beyond (coughs) what the Scriptures teach. It was just a day of rest. Don't work. They turned that into every kind of minor... Restriction, just ridiculous. Uh, ridiculous. And you've heard some of them, and we won't go into that. But this same group, the corrupt leadership that was leading at the temple, this same group, they're watching him. And they come into the temple, and you think their mind is on worship? No. They're trying to make sure and look and see if there's the slightest little thing that happens during this time that there could be a basis for accusing Jesus of wrongdoing because they want to get rid of him. scornfully looking around, watching every move. No care or concern for the man's withered hand and the condition he was in. It probably kept him from working. In one of the parallel accounts, it says it was his right hand. And since most people are right-handed, it was probably such a disability 
that he couldn't even work or earn a living. And they could not care less. They were using him as a tool to get to Jesus. That's what religion will do for you. Make you lose sight of love. And then he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. <laughs> I love that. That's Jesus like, hey, you're baiting me? I take it. As a matter of fact, I raised this. You think you did? I did. Step forward. That guy didn't ask him for a thing. He didn't raise his hand and whatever or whatever he could do with it. Atrophy, probably. And say, Jesus, I'm here to get healing. There's no there's none of that. Jesus marched him out and says, Step forward. I'm gonna put this on display. He confronted him. He was bold. The Bible says the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And he stepped up there. He said, Step up here. You can see that frail man in your imagination standing there, holding his hand in whatever way he could hold it. Poor and destitute, without being able to help himself. Probably a workaday guy that could not work and could not do for himself. He said to them, he looked around at him and said, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? You answer the question. Sabbath is a day of rest ordained by God. Is it on a day that we should kill or do evil or do good? And they kept silent. It shut them down. There's no answer to that. What are you going to say? So, you know, in another account of them trying to mark him out, he said, you know, if your sheep falls into the ditch or your ox or whatever, you save him. What about human life? You see, that's what religion does. It's lifeless. And when it's confronted with life, it can't stand life. So it wants to get rid of it. So Jesus, who is life, is standing in front of him, and their only solution for him, we can't submit to him, because that means it'll bust up our system, our Ponzi scheme, if we submit to him. And that means we have to humble ourselves and admit that he's the Messiah. So we can't do that. So the only other thing is we'll get rid of him. We'll destroy him. That was their intent. But they kept silent, and when he looked around at them with anger, look at that. He looked around with them with anger. Thank the Lord for His restraining power. They better be grateful for it because He could have unleashed it with less than the bat of His eye. That's translated from a word from which the word wrath is translated in other passages in the Scripture. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's translated as wrath in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but thee. If we want to borrow our word, anger, but in that part, in rendering, it says wrath of God abides on him. That's what he's thinking right now. That's what he's feeling. You know what? People who don't show emotion are hard to get to know, aren't they? Emotions kind of give us handles so we can grab a hold of and get to know people because we can't see their heart. So we see their emotions and it gives us some handles to kind of get and develop relationships. And the emotions of Jesus are spoken of and seen throughout the Gospels. A variety of them. Compassion. Weeping. In the death of Lazarus, you'll remember. Anger here. Anger. He is really upset. And then, he's grieved though. It's the kind of anger that grieves. It's the kind of anger that is put together in a Holy Spirit way. It's like when it's spoken of the Lord that He will rule and shepherd. A ruler without shepherding is tyranny. A shepherd without rule is chaos. Only He can be both and beautifully exhibit that. So our Lord, full of wrath, at the same time is full of grief at the spiritual condition and what they had been offered and what they had rejected. 
He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts were so hard, they couldn't have cared less about this man. They put him up to this, I'll assume. They probably paid him. Hey, I'll give you five bucks to stand here someplace and kind of just, you know, just move around and get his attention. You know, and we'll pay. We'll, we'll, uh, they paid off Judas the same way. This is different, though, because this man steps forward and says, Stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and rejoiced over the healing of this fellow Jew. No. And the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Can you imagine? This guy, for the first time, he's in there going, It works. It works. He probably couldn't stand it. He probably had to pick up everything. Let me pick up something. He's probably going around picking up something and using something. And he's rejoicing. But if I can earn a living now, I've got it. My, my hand's been restored. And they're over there in a little unholy huddle plotting and how they might kill him because he violated the Sabbath. He violated their Sabbath rules, but he didn't violate a single one of God's Sabbath rules. He didn't go over there and say, well, let me touch you. He didn't exert any physical effort to heal him. He just said, done. He could have done it. He could have done it any way he wanted to do it. With the centurion, he, he said, without a word, this word, this thing, this healing, he says, done. The aspirations, what these people were offered and what they thwarted and what they turned down is a tragedy. An absolute tragedy. He had grieved the Apostle Paul so badly that if this weren't in the Bible, I would never believe it. I would not believe it if this weren't in the Bible. But the Apostle Paul was so grieved about the spiritual condition of this religious leadership in this apostate nation that he said he would go to hell if he meant their salvation in Romans chapter 9. I'd never believe that if that weren't in the Bible. That's what he said. I myself would be a curse from Christ if they might be saved. And he knew that would not save them. But this is the heart of Jesus. Anger and yet grief. Nobody can emulate that. You and I can't go out and say, well, we're going to either be in the anger column or we're going to be in the grief column or neither. But Jesus can be angry and grieved. He can be ruler and shepherd. He's these things. He's perfect. He's beautiful. And they missed it. And they're standing in front. And what they cannot stand about Him, and the reason they want Him destroyed, is because He just threw light on their sorriness. Let me ask you this. If you're just a regular parishioner in that synagogue meeting, and you watch this happen, and this guy's a friend of yours, and you know him to be crippled and debilitated with that, you know what kind of life that's meant for him, for him to have a hand that won't work. And what a struggle that's been for him. And he's your friend. And Jesus comes along and with a word heals him. And these guys conspired to kill the one who did it. And they're upset because he broke the Sabbath by doing it. What kind of decision would you make? Would you want to follow that kind of leadership? Would you want to say, oh yeah, those that's my pastor right there. You say, I don't want anything to do with that. Count be out. I'm going with him. He's got life. He is life. He loved this man. These people couldn't care less about him. And that's what the aspiration was. Jesus set up His covenant people to be just that kind of witness. And they turned their back on Him. Slammed Him and rejected Him to the point of calling for His crucifixion. And yet in His mercy and grace and long-suffering, He still saves a remnant of them and He will save the entire nation when He comes back. I tell you right now, they're going to have the Super Bowl, this worship service. And if you watch it, I don't mean you're a part of the worship service, but they're about to have it. There's not a hero on that field because I can tell you who the hero is. And His name is Jesus Christ. You get into the Scriptures, you begin to see Him, and it makes you love Him more. It makes you want to worship Him and bow down to Him and say, God, you can have everything i got. I don't care. I don't have nothing. Because i got You. i got You. And if i got You and You have Me, i got everything. 
in the world can offer whatever they want. It doesn't matter. It can look shiny. They can throw it in front of me. But I can hear to tell you, I say no because I'm saying yes to you. You've given me life. You give life. And so he threw light all over their spiritual pride. And instead of repenting, and dear ones, he was grieved because of the hardness of their heart. They hardened their heart. And then in return to a hardened heart, God hardens their heart. But their hardness was their choice. And he was grieved over their choice. But he overcame it. So that brings me to this. Before we leave this passage, you got these four courts. You got a court for Israel, you got a court for the women, you got a court for the priests, and you got a court for the Gentiles. This buying and selling was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And when Jesus walks in there, and He says, I don't want these people to conclude that the way you're acting has anything to do with me. I don't want them to draw a conclusion that this is what I'm like. And I want to ask you, we personalize that in the environments that we get hurled into. Let's ask the Lord to so sanctify us and call us in closer communion to Him that in all those relationships, the authentic Jesus is seen. He said, I don't want you to associate. This place is marked out for me. My name is on this place. I'm the personification of this place. And you're telling these people, because here's what was said. And I want to end with this. And man, I wish we could go some other places. But we have to look to Mark's account, I think, to get a full orb understanding of what's going on here, or a better understanding in Mark's account of the second cleansing in Mark chapter 11. Let's just go there and we'll, we'll call, call it with this. In the second cleansing of the temple in Mark's account, it is said of this. Look what it says. Chapter 11, verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And He would not allow anyone to carry water, carry wares through the temple. Through the temple. He's so in command, you couldn't even walk through there. Things are shut down. Okay. Then He taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? the court of the Gentiles. This place, understand prayer. It's not just talking to God, but it's conversing with God. It is hearing from Him and then me talking back to Him. It's a two-way conversation. Prayer is. And He said, communion in the court of the Gentiles. I have marked out this place that starting with the Jew, I'm going to go and I'm going to make the people of God who once were not the people of God, the people of God. I'm going to make the people who are far off, I'm going to bring them near. I'm going to make the people who were not obtained mercy, I'm going to give them mercy in this court. And you're perverting it in front of all of them. And I'm upset about it. But here's the beauty. <laughs> that wasn't a house of prayer at that time. <laughs> but that was a preview of coming attractions. Because one day when He returns and that temple sits right there where it's supposed to sit in all its glory and He's there, it will be a house of prayer for all nations. It wasn't then, but it one day will be. Hallelujah. In His first coming, He died for this mess. But in the second coming, He's coming to judge it. And He's going to grant national repentance to Israel. And the, house, and the temple is going to be there and it will be Him. He will be there and we'll be with Him and we'll be serving Him. And that kingdom will be comprised of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it will be a house of prayer for all nations. Comprised of repentant believers from every nation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But in the meantime... 
He went to the cross to make that possible. So when we get to this place, we see the aspirations. They were so oriented to this world, could not hear the word, could not hear the Lord. They were outside His authority. They had usurped it. And therefore, they could not hear. When we see this text, we realize that when we look in the text to see Jesus, we're making the right assessment. That we can only assess things when it's seen through the prism of Jesus Christ. And then all the glory starts. Then you start to see what light's really made of. And it's more than one color. (laughs) And you see it in its brilliance when you put it up to the prism. And that's the lens through which we see. And then we start to look and act and think biblically. And then we realize that those aspirations were unmet by the Jews, but were met in Christ. And that the temple is coming. That's why I always put on the prayer request, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because you know what? This week they unveiled a peace plan. I appreciate their efforts. It's a very thoughtful peace plan. Highly supported by Israel. And our president and the Prime Minister of Israel got together, did a joint press conference and talked about it and spelled out. And the Palestinians are already calling for rights and they've rejected it. It's not going going to work. I appreciate their effort. Should they make the effort? Absolutely, I appreciate it. But when I was watching that, I was just sitting there thinking, that will fail. But one day, the Prince of Peace is coming. And He will succeed. And there will be peace in Jerusalem forever. Hallelujah. And it's all because of the cross of Jesus. So we can bow now or we bow later. Let's bow now.